our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, all right. Before I get started, uh, real quick, somebody had left a Lutheran study Bible and a small catechism. Uh, I don't know if anybody's missing this or knows somebody who is, but this has been left and it's been in the church office for a number of weeks. Um, Anybody know who this might belong to? No? Okay. Well, it's up here. Uh, We might bring it back to the the church office. It needs a home. And the pastor asked me to make that public service announcement. But uh, in any case... Um, let's flip open to page 164 of our small catechism. And as I said, we're going to be talking about the second article of the Apostles' Creed, the article of the Son. And, um, boy, well, Luther, I'll just say this, um, Luther in his larger catechism, on his, in his section on the second article of the Apostles' Creed, uh, he says a couple of things that, that stood out to me as I read over it last night. He said that, you know, at the very end of it, as, of his treatment of it, he said, we can never learn this article fully enough. We can never learn fully enough all, all that Christ is and has done for us and for our salvation. You know, we can never learn it, you know, fully enough, deeply enough, richly enough. It's, there's always more for us to glean and gain and, and, and pick up um, uh, when it comes to this article. And it is far-reaching indeed. It is far-reaching indeed. This, Jesus is the sum and the substance of all of Holy Scripture. And all, as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of them. And as Christ our Lord says in John 5, 39, all the scriptures testify of me. Right? All of them. So you will not, you cannot turn to a single page in Holy Scripture, in, in all of it, and not uh, have Jesus there. Jesus is the heart of it all. He is the heart of our faith. He is our life and our salvation. And... Um, you, you really cannot praise him highly enough, uh, richly enough. Again, all those things. Um, there's an infinite amount of glory um, and wisdom and knowledge in Christ. And so it is a, it is a privilege to be able to, to talk about this article today um, and, and always uh, to, to meditate on these things. It's, it's always fruitful. Even just take a couple minutes a day, you know, if you find time to just, no matter what else has happened, uh, just sit and think on, on Christ, our Savior, and thank the Lord for sending him and for redeeming us. So always a, always a fruitful thing to do. Um, in any case, so I'll just read the, uh, the second article as we have it in bold here, and then we'll, um, we'll dig into the scriptures a little bit. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so just by way of introduction, I think it's important to mention that when it comes to creeds, okay, the ecumenical creeds of the Christian church, it's important to recognize that when we confess these things in the creed, we are not just stating biblical facts about who Jesus is or any of the persons of the Trinity. That is what we're doing, but it's more than that. When we confess these things in the creed, we are recognizing them and proclaiming them to be essential for our salvation. Okay? It's, that's, that's what it is that we're doing. So all of these things that you see listed here are essential. Not one of them can be left out when it comes to our salvation. Okay? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, that is the Son of the Father, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, and so on. Okay, all of it essential, necessary for us to confess and hold to in the Orthodox faith. Okay, so we, what we see are, are two things going on, at, two, at least two things in this way. We see Christ's humiliation dis- described, and we also see his exaltation, right? And theolo- dogmaticians, theologians, they, um, they say that, or th- this is, these are the terms that they give these things. So when Christ is, is humbled in the form of human flesh, and suffered and died and all of these things, that's the Christ's state of humiliation, okay, when he was accomplishing our redemption. Okay, then after the fact, after he was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand of God, uh, this is his state of exaltation, okay? So you've got the state of humiliation, state of exaltation. And to show you that these are not just things that theologians have invented or come up with, you know, published uh, to, to, you know, things that they come up with to, to get their PhD and, and, and make a name for themselves. Let's flip open to our scriptures into Philippians chapter 2, and we will see how St. Paul himself gives us uh, this sort of vocabulary and framework with which to uh, think. Okay, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. All right, so I'll just begin at verse 1, and then we'll read, uh, we will read through verse 11, okay? So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's where it's pertinent for our purposes here today. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, so there you have it. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, so this does not mean, uh, as some errant Christian denominations have it, that Christ completely laid aside his entire divinity. Okay, and he was only a man. That is not what this is saying. What it is saying is that he didn't make full use of his divinity, because Christ can't lay aside his divinity entirely. It's, It's impossible. He's God by nature. So, he did not make full use of his divinity in, uh, in his state of humiliation. Okay? And again, you get this, this word humbling, uh, humiliation, this um, abasement language in verse 8. Okay? And being found in human form, he humbled himself okay? by becoming obedient to the point of death. Okay? So in his, in his form as a servant, he was um, subjugated to the Father, Okay, so um, by virtue of his uh, deity, Christ is equal to the Father, uh, not inferior to him in any respect, but by virtue of Christ's humanity, he is lesser than the Father, okay, and he is a servant of God, okay, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, his, his, his obedience reached a crescendo, okay, in, in obeying the Father's will, being sent into the world for our redemption, that all of that reached the crescendo in his death on the cross. Okay, all of it was building up to that point. Death on a cross. Okay, then you see what happens afterward. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Okay? So here in verse 9, you see the language of exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him okay, above anybody. And then what we find in Colossians is St. Paul articulating this idea that he is before all things, he is preeminent, okay, the firstborn of the dead. Um, as a man, Christ Jesus risen from the dead, God and man in one person, he is exalted above everyone and everything. All of the spiritual powers, all human powers, everything, he is preeminent and above all. Okay. Um, but in any case, I, I did want to, to bring this out. So in verse 8, you see the language of humiliation. Verse 9, you get the language of exaltation. And these are the two states of Christ uh, by virtue of the incarnation. Humiliation, exaltation. Okay. Um, let's see. Any, any questions on that? Any, anything uh, you might want to ask? Any reflections, contemplations? It's a very key passage in, in Scripture to to give us a, a thorough understanding of what it was Christ was doing and um, like in, his, uh, in his state of humiliation and afterwards, like what does it mean that Christ is now exalted and what's the implication now of his being risen uh, from the dead and uh, seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God, by the way, is not a location. This is the error of, or one of the errors of the Reformed. This is not a location. It is a position of power. Okay. Uh, that's, that is a, an important point because the Reformed will say that Christ is seated at the right hand of God and he's locked away, as it were, in heaven. He's unable to go anywhere else now. Uh, but that's not true. It's, it's a position of power, right? When the, when the scriptures all over the place speak of someone being at, at, at the right hand, um, that's a position of authority, okay? not just a specific locale. Yes? Uh, on the issue of uh, the uh, equality of Jesus with God, I note that there's this passage says, "Every knee will bow," and this is a this is a reference that in Romans 14 you have it, mm-hmm. where that that same allusion is made: every knee will bow, every tongue confess mm-hmm. that Jesus is Lord, and that refers back to Isaiah 45, and in Isaiah 45. It says, every knee shall bow to Yahweh. Mm. To Right, it says, the Lord, uh, and it's all capitals, so that means this is the name of God. Nice. So what this, this passage not only does not lower Jesus below God, it declares him to be Yahweh. Right, right. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, and uh, yeah, well said. I, I didn't think of Isaiah 45, but uh, I absolutely see that. And, and what a beautiful, you know, what a beautiful thing. No doubt St. Paul would, would think of a passage like that. Um, uh, he uses it twice. Right, right. That's a great point. Thank you for that. Anybody else? Any thoughts we might have? Okay. So, um, in any case, yes, Philippians 2, very important uh, passage for us to, to understand who Jesus is and what he has done, okay? Um, and when we turn back to the Apostles' Creed on page 150, 164, rather, um, look at what it says. So, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, um, and, and you know what, let's, let, why don't we just go to, to Luther's explanation here? Okay, what does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God... Okay, to Dale's point. True God, begotten of the Father from eternity. And also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. Okay, so true God, begotten of the Father from eternity. Jesus is, or the, the Son of God, is eternally generated out of the being of the Father. Okay, the Father has communicated his entire being um, in Christ, uh, in the Son. Okay, the fullness, uh, this, this was the, the subject of a massive controversy that split the church in the early days uh, in the fourth century with the, the Arian controversy that denied the divinity, the fundamental, essential divinity of the Son. Okay, and the Arians would say that, um, that the Son of God was the first of God's creatures. Okay, the first of God's creatures that he made. Okay, so this, they would say that the Son does not share an essential unity with the Father, but it is a unity of will. 
okay, the Son is united in the will of the Father, they would also say um, that the Father was not eternally Father then. Okay, when, when the, the Arians would march through the street and they would, they would shout, they, they, they would chant, there was when he was not. There was when he was not. Okay, this is blasphemy. This is a denial of the, uh, um, the, the Son's eternal union with the Father and his essential divinity by nature. Okay, and um, so they would say that the Father was not always the Father. The Son was not always Son. Uh, and that the Son cannot know the Father, re- like ultimately, because they, the, you know, the, the Arians held that, um, that the essence of God is so utterly transcendent and unknowable and just beyond any and all reason and reckon. I mean, it's just utterly transcendent. Okay, we can't know. So, therefore, the Son also cannot know the Father, who he is, um, intimately and personally. Right? The Son can only know by participation, and um, you know, even it's weak at that. It's, he's better than anybody else, but, but that's all that the Son can know. Okay? And so you can see this totally changes the entire nature of theology, of, of, of the Christian faith. I mean, it completely robs Christ of his divine glory, and you know, it's really a strange thing in many ways, in many ways, um, because... This would mean that if, you know, if the Son is not God by nature, then that would mean that we are worshiping a creature, you know, by essence. You know, he's not God by nature. Um, and, you know, my goodness, what a, what a strange thing that would be. Um, by virtue of the incarnation, Christ has united himself with creation, um, but uh, very, very fundamentally different faith uh, outside the Christian faith is the Arian belief. So, in any case, I, I, just, I had a great time learning about all of that in, in seminary and uh, just wanted to pass some of these things along with you, uh, along to you. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, uh, we, we recognize Arians today or Arianism in the Jehovah's Witness mm-hmm. and in the Mormons. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you know of any other current day uh, religions? I think this is important because the Mormons are constantly telling us that they're Christian, just like us, blah, blah, blah. And this, of course, is the, is the big difference, or one of them. Certainly. Uh, I, I think it's good to be able to know if there's others out there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good question. I can't say, I can't mention any specific groups like that. I, doubtless, they're out there. I know that, the, um, interestingly, the Reformers... Uh, had to had to combat these things, uh, namely the second generation reformers, in, um, specifically like Martin Chemnitz and um, and company, um, with Article Twelve of the Formula of Concord. They specifically name other sects that have not signed on to the Augsburg Confession and the and the Lutheran uh, confessions, um, and they mention new Arians. So evidently, even as late as, or even in the, you know, in the 17th century, uh, or late 16th century, uh, even Chemnitz and, and others had recognized that there are people out there that deny the divinity of the sun. So I don't know who, among, who out there today uh, might also do that, but yeah, certainly the Jehovah's Witnesses, certain, certainly the Mormons deny the divinity of the sun, yeah, or that he's essentially God by nature, yeah. Um, well, and, I mean, Islam would do that too. I mean, Islam—they they think that Christ is just another, uh, just another one of the prophets. Um, you know, in the line of like he he came before Muhammad, but uh, yeah, they would deny that Jesus is God by nature. They're not a super danger to us because they don't claim to be Christian. Right. right. You know. Yeah. They, yeah. They they wouldn't claim to be Christian, although uh, they would recognize the Bible as you know, an authority, right? Um, and they are certainly, they've, throughout history, they've certainly been an existential threat to Christianity uh, or to the, you know, the people of God on earth. But yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, very, very, um, you know, we, it, it, we're tempted, I think, as Christians to just kind of gloss over some of these things. Um, you know, we recite them often in the, uh, we, we confess them often in the divine service, you know, the, the second article of the creed. But, you know, when you dig into the history of the church and you realize how important, how, how the devil has 
sought to undermine these things. It can really breathe new life into your appreciation for these things that we confess. It makes you look at the scriptures in a new way and with more vigor and intensity and to be very careful in what, we, what it is that we confess and hold true, right? Um, and on, on this note, I would say also that um, the fact that Jesus is the, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, I think is very important in our day to combat the cynicism that the devil seeks to work in us. And um, by cynicism, I mean this idea that, uh, well, this, this sort of like, it's a, it's a sort of despair that holds that the way that things are and how, how crappy things are. I'll just put it that way. Uh, This is how it is. This is how it's always going to be. And, um, you know, that the devil wants to work in us this idea that either everything is wonderful and nothing could ever go wrong or that everything is wrong and it won't ever change and it won't ever become, you know, God God will not... uh, will not bring about peace and, and prosperity and, and uh, seek to give us good things, right? Uh, the devil is happy with both. He wants it either one extreme or the other, and he works uh, diligently to, to bring that about. So it's important for us to recognize that in Jesus, in the resurrection of the Son of God, um, that this is the definitive proof that God is who he says he is and that he's faithful to, to, um, to keep his promises, to do what he says, Okay, he is not this sort of deist God that creates the world and winds it up and then just lets it kind of go and steps back and just says, oh boy, well, uh, things have really gone, <laughs> gone down the tubes down there, huh? And I'm going to go over here and maybe just turn away from that for a minute. You know, uh, it, it's, that's not how God is. And um, in Jesus, we have the definitive proof that God is good, okay? that God is merciful, that he wants us uh, to be his own, to, to, claim, to reclaim us from the dominion of darkness. And, um, you know, it can alleviate this sort of cynicism that will um, erode our prayers, you know, because if God is just, if he doesn't care about us and he's just content to leave us in, our, in this pit of despair, right, it can erode our desire to actually call upon him and seek good things from God. It can erode our desire to actually read the scriptures and learn about the true faith and about um, all that God has done in the history of salvation. You know, all, the, all, the, all of God's gracious deeds are not just relics and artifacts from a day gone by when God was more uh, active uh, in, the, in the affairs of the world. But no, God is now actively governing the world through his Son. And all things have been given, uh, have been put under his feet in subjection to him. And although, as the, as the author of Hebrews says, we cannot see it manifest yet, uh, it nevertheless is true because of the resurrection of Jesus. We know it to be true. And uh, again, that God is, is faithful to keep his promises. And I, I find myself sometimes sliding into this sort of cynicism and you know, just believing the worst about people and about things. And you know, that is not the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and I, I find myself needing to repent of that. Uh, that is uh, you know, the work of the devil uh, in, in us. So in any case... Um, the, the second article, of course, is something to be treasured, and I think, at least in our day, it's fruitful for, or useful for, uh, mitigating against cynicism. Any thoughts on that? Any, uh, any, any reflections on that? You want to uh, hit back at me on any of that? Okay. All right, so let's go back to um, the Catechism, page 164. Okay, so we have this confession about the two natures of of Christ. Uh, We've got him as true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man. Okay, very important that we recognize that Jesus is 100% man. Everything that is proper to human nature has been uh, um, is in Christ. Okay. So that means that Christ assumed a human soul. Christ assumed a human mind. Okay, there's an early church heresy uh, called Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism that said that instead of having a human mind, the divinity, okay, the logos, the reason of God, took the place of the human mind. Right? So Christ's human nature was incomplete. And... Um, they, 
they got this from their uh, philosophy, these heretics, uh, they, they got this from their philosophy. Sorry, Dale, but, uh, but uh, the, one of the early church fathers, I think it was Tertullian, said that um, heretics get all their ammunition from philosophy. So, disagree with him at your, you know, <laughs> your lecture. <laughs> but in any case, so the way that... Yeah, yeah. So in any case, uh, so the way that the Apollinarians got this, I, uh, arrived at this theology, this false theology about who Christ is, um, is by their understanding of mixtures. Okay, so they were thinking about, okay, how do things mix together and form one whole? Okay, two separate substances, when they come together, how do they become one? Okay, and the way that they reasoned was that, well, you have to have um, at least one of the, um, the things that you mix has to be incomplete. Okay, there has to be something that's incomplete that finds its completion in the other. Okay, so like mixing salt and water, right? Salt is uh, incomplete until it comes into union with the water and it becomes one. That's, it's subsumed into the water. And so they would say that Christ, is, his human nature, is incomplete. It's necessarily incomplete. It has to be. Um, so, again, he wouldn't have a human soul. He wouldn't have a human mind. The deity would supply that which the human nature lacked in that, in that respect. Okay. So, uh, this is a big problem. Um, as one of our great church fathers Gregory of Nazianzus would say, that which was not assumed by Christ was not redeemed. Okay, that which was not assumed by Christ, by the Son, was not redeemed. And so, if Christ didn't assume a human mind, then our human mind, fallen as it is, tainted by sin, has not been redeemed. Okay, our human soul that has been stained and corrupted by sin, uh, would not be redeemed uh, in the incarnation of Christ. Okay, so um, very important for us to recognize that, for us to, to, to hold to that and to confess, even against reason, that Christ's humanity was full, he's fully human and fully divine in one person. Okay, fully divine, fully human. Okay, it, it, it bears directly on our, on our salvation. Okay, who Christ is is, uh, is of the utmost importance for us to confess the fullness of the scriptures and recognize what it is that we're actually saying about who Christ is and what he's done for us. Um, But in any case, so true God uh, and also true man born of the Virgin Mary. And of course this, you know, the the idea that Christ was born of a virgin has also been under assault, I think, at least in the earliest days by the Jews who just believed that he was, that Mary... uh, had illicit relations with a, a, a Roman soldier and that Christ is just any other guy. Um, but, of course, we know this isn't true. This is not what the scriptures say. And, um, you know, it's important that we recognize that um, Christ did, in fact, assume our humanity from the Virgin. Okay? He, he did not descend from heaven with this sort of celestial flesh prior to the incarnation. No, he took our flesh, okay, all of us, our flesh, in the incarnation. And God in Christ has united himself to humanity. Humanity is now made new in Jesus. He is the head of, new, of a new humanity. Okay? And um, the whole world is reconciled to God in Christ by virtue of his humanity. And were it not for Christ's humanity, we would be utterly consumed in the presence of God, just like wood, hay, and stubble is consumed by fire. It's Christ's humanity that allows us actually to participate in the deity and to approach God and not be consumed ourselves. Okay? So in the one person of Christ, he has united humanity and deity together. And there is a great mystery there. We should, we should not gloss over that. God has given our human nature a place within his own life. Okay? And this is for eternity too. Christ w- will always be God and man in one person. Okay, will always be that way. And um, an amazing thing too is when you think about Christ being raised from the dead for our justification and our absolution. Uh, when you touch the body of Christ, you are touching your forgiveness with your own hands. 
And it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to think about, uh, that the, that of the forgiveness of sins in Christ's body, that his flesh is fundamentally life-giving. It bestows life. Okay? And that life we receive every, every Sunday and as often as we partake of the sacrament. Um, going further into Luther's explanation here, Okay, so now, now we see how, wh- what does the, the, the union of, of Christ, the, of, of, uh, the hypostatic union of, of, of God and man united in one person, what does this do for us? Okay, so here's what he says, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. Okay, so here we see the results of the incarnation and the work of Christ, that he has redeemed us. And Luther says that this is really, um, that, that Christ is our Redeemer is what it means to say that Jesus is Lord now. Okay? And as I said uh, some weeks ago, Lord is a relational term. Okay? You can't just say that you're Lord in the abstract. You have to be Lord over something, over somebody. Okay? You have to have subjects um, over whom you exercise authority. So when we say that Jesus is our Lord, we are recognizing his authority, his dominion and headship over us. Okay. And how has all of this happened? Well, he had to redeem us. He had to purchase and win us from the dominion of darkness. He had to snatch us, as you hear in Pastor's sermon today. He, um, uh, the, the, the stronger man had to come and tie up and bound the, the less... Uh, the lesser man, you know, the, the strong man who, who, had, who stole us away from God in the first place. Okay. Um, this is what Christ has done. And as I, love, I love what Luther says here, not with gold or silver. Okay. He has not purchased us with coarse metals from the earth. Okay. But he has shed his holy, precious blood. Okay. And um, you, what we find in the scriptures in Leviticus 17.11 is that the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And so when Christ's blood is poured out for us sacrificially, okay, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when his blood is poured out for us, his life is, is poured out for us. Okay? And the Lord, re, uh, the Lord God, the Father, receives the sacrifice of Christ. He propitiates the wrath of God, Christ does, and um, we receive the fullness of Christ's own life. Christ communicates his life to us. And when we, when we partake of the, of the cup uh, in the Eucharist, uh, we receive the very life of Christ in his blood. Okay. Uh, the life of Christ uh, becomes one with us. Or, or we, we, we become one in it. We are joined and united to Christ in the sacrament. Um, and our union with the Lord Jesus becomes visible and concrete. You can see it in the Eucharist. Um, so in any case, it's by the shedding of blood. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And um, you know, by Christ's shed blood, we are all forgiven. We are all bought uh, and made God's own um, by this uh, just... W- I mean, mysterious, wonderful act. And anybody, you know, you'll find sometimes, I, I've, uh, at the seminary especially, I've come into contact with people who believe the aberrant teachings of late 20th century Lutherans who will say that uh, Christ's death on the cross is a, nothing but a cosmic accident. Okay? So um, it's basically like what this th- particular theologian does is he says, well, um, what Christ did for us is basically like somebody pushing, like a bus coming down the street and somebody standing uh, in the street, you know, w- in the face of this oncoming vehicle. And what Christ does is he pushes us out of the way and, and, and takes the blow for us. Um, but it's just an accident. It's, a, it's just a cosmic mishap, right? That's all that, that's all that it is. And, um, you know, when you, when you recognize that God the Father sent his Son 
specifically to die for our redemption, okay, to win us back, to, to, to steal us back from the devil's clutches. It's anything but a cosmic accident. It's anything but just a cosmic mishap. Um, you know, and that bus, by the way, would be the law in his, in his scheme, right? Uh, so, no, the, the, the Son of God's death for us is not just an accident. It's, uh, you know, it's anything but that. It's a, we, we must stand in awe that, the, that the God our Father sent his own Son to bear our sin and be our Savior. Okay? Uh, it is a priceless treasure, and it must be, uh, we must tremble at the thought of it, that, that we who are but dust and ashes, um, that, the, that the Savior would, would, would come and save us from our sins. Okay. In any case, yes. Go back a little bit mm-hmm. uh, uh, to Christ. Um, you know the 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 huge difference between Christ and us because we're sinners and He's holy. If you go back and say, okay. What was the difference between Christ and Adam? That's not as great as the difference between Christ and us. In other words, Adam could talk to God. Adam related with God. And so I think once our sin nature is removed, if you could look at it this way, that our sin nature is removed, that's the hurdle. Mm -hmm. And we're restored uh, back to Adam's Um, in relationship with God. Right. So uh, I think that's exciting. Absolutely. Well, I th- and I think that um, we, yeah, well, we, we would be restored to a greater, um, what should I say, our humanity will be greater than that of Adam because uh, in the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of all flesh, we will not be able to fall again, yeah, yeah. right? And um, I was just talking with the former vicar of this church, uh, jo- Joseph Mensch, uh, about his graduate studies uh, up at the seminary. And he said that this is one of the most interesting finds of his studies of Cyril of Alexandria, one of our greatest church fathers, is that he relates um, re- really the story of salvation as our relationship to um, uh, the Spirit of God. Okay, so in the beginning, um, Adam possessed the spirit, of course, he was created in God's image, and God breathed the breath of life into him. Okay, so as part of God's own life force was breathed into Adam, and he also received the spirit there, uh, therein as well. But what happened in sin um, was that Adam turned away from, um, from God and forfeited the spirit, Okay, and his human nature was fundamentally altered, corrupted, and changed, uh, for the, obviously for the worse at that point. Um, and that of all humanity uh, went with him. But in Christ, um, his humanity is utterly stable with regard to the Spirit. Christ, Christ cannot lose the Spirit. He is God by nature and possesses the Spirit by nature. And in the Incarnation, we now have a humanity that cannot lose the Spirit. Jesus, as a man, cannot lose the Spirit. And so for all of us who are incorporated into Christ, um, when we are raised in our flesh, we will not be able to lose the Spirit either. Okay? We will always be united to God and enjoy the gifts of the Holy Spirit, always, into eternity. Uh, so in any case, I think that kind of buttresses your point a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, so I see a couple of hands. Sitting here makes me realize how dull our society is. This is absolutely from my the new word that I'm using maybe too often is riveting. Yeah. It, it just and and it is the it is the presentation. With honor to you, the presenter, uh, that I I am saying, goodness, we let this book. You hear me every week saying something positive about old Martin Luther's small catechism. Think of the the uh, awakening to the spirit when you finally get it. What God has done for us yeah. in Christ. 
And it is, I don't know, I'm just, as I age, and I think I say this every week also, I am having an awakening to the joys of the word and how I wish to be young again to to have it open earlier for me. Um, I don't know what that sounds like, but uh, I'm I'm with Bob here, appreciating the 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 exuberance that is within the Word of God for us, and it's it we can be such dull-minded humans about the silliness that's on TV and the news and what's going on in Putin's Russia and so forth. It's just I'm just grateful for what you do here. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you, Ellie. I, I really appreciate that. And all, all of it is to the glory of God. It's all the truth of God's word. It's all there for us. And, um, you know, it's important that we see that by virtue of Christ in, and, the, and the whole Trinity dwelling within us, you know, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And where one person of the Trinity is, there are the other two as well. The three cannot be separated. And since the Holy Spirit and Christ dwell within us, the Father also dwells within us. And by virtue of this union um, in, in the saints of God, the Lord is changing us. He is changing us from within. And he is enlightening us uh, in the truth of his word. And as the scriptures say, we are going, we are going from, we're being changed. Uh, and, and the literal language, I'm, I'm pretty sure, Pastor, correct me if I'm wrong, but the literal language is, is that of metamorphosis. And we are being changed from one degree of glory to another as we see uh, with unveiled face the mystery of Christ at work. And um, as we grow in our, in our knowledge of the oracles of God, the mysteries of God, and we, we grow in, in virtue and sanctification and, and all of these things. Um, you know, the, 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 the glory of God is shown in us. Right now it's hidden, but one day it won't be. And you will shine with, with all the glory of the sons of God. And that work which Christ has begun in you will be brought to completion on the day of salvation. So... Um, you know, all I'm doing is just showing you, you know, just pointing out what the, what the scriptures say and, uh, and maybe taking you through a little bit of church history and, and talking about what Luther says. But, uh, you know, this, this is our faith. This is what we all hold, and this is what the Lord has for us. So thank you for that. Yes, Dale. Yeah, um, I, I want to return, uh, if I can, just for a second to this uh, cosmic accident. Ah, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's the actual, if those are the words that the theologian you're thinking of actually uses. That seems rather unfelicitous to me. Indeed. But the idea of Christ taking the bus hit for us isn't necessarily that far off. If you think of the, if you think of the bus as the devil, okay, it doesn't make any sense. Our problem isn't really with the devil. I mean, we can't do, we can't deal with the devil. But God can deal with the devil. He, does, God, he would not have had to become man if it were just the devil, yeah. right? The problem we have is that we are against the word of God, right? The law is the word of God, and it's God versus God is, is, is our basic problem here. Right? That's why God had to become man, because the only thing that could really present a problem for God is God himself. So, mm. well, right? I mean, if you say Christ <laughs> is the word of God, right, doesn't that mean to some extent that Christ is the law? He's also the gospel. True. Right? But... So, so it's God has to deal, it's, it's, a transaction within the Godhead that, that we're dealing with, I think, with with uh, the that's why God had to become man, not because oh geez he couldn't deal with the devil any other way. It was just a matter of dealing with the devil. Bang, he's dead. Right. Well, I mean, I I don't know that I have time to untangle that knot, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> so I mean, if you think of the bus of, of Christ as both mm-hmm. the bus and the and the savior from the bus, maybe it's not so bad. I don't well, know if I'd use the word cosmic accident, and I'd probably use a different analogy. But yeah, <laughs> you know. well, he, so the problem with this theologian, well, one of the problems with it is that um, he conceives of the law as just basically an arbitrary instrument. Uh, instrument that um, it certainly is, it isn't. 
Certainly not, yeah, certainly not. And fundamentally, you can take it to the extent that there is a contradiction within the Godhead himself, um, and that God has to overcome his word of the law and destroy it. And, um, well, I wouldn't put it that way. But yeah, well, that's kind of where he goes with it, um, and maybe some of its, uh, some of its coarser forms. Um, but no, there is no contradiction within the Godhead. God in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself. And um, again, it's, it, it is a sacrilege to say that, um, because this, uh, this theologian will say in other places that um, Christ's death on the cross was, was just a death. That's all it was. It was bloody and awful, but it, all it was was just a death. There was no greater meaning to it. Yeah, it's blasphemy uh, is what it is. So, uh, yeah. I, anyway. Pastor, did you um, did you maybe have some thoughts that you might want to present there? Let me just pick the pieces up of my head that explode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you did a good job. God doesn't contradict God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and so I, I, I was listening to a, a podcast of a particular Lutheran organization just yesterday too. Sorry, I'm just I'm just on one today, I guess. Um, there was a particular Lutheran organization where they were saying that there are two words of God, law and gospel, um, and that these two are, are set in antithesis to one another and that you know, the gospel has to overcome the law, basically, the God, that Christ is the end of the law in that respect. But that's not, that's not the case. There is one word of God that must be rightly distinguished in terms of law and gospel. Okay? There's one word of God. Um, very important for us to recognize that. And... Um, the, to, to say that Christ is the end of the law, what the literal Greek language there is, is that Christ is the telos of the law. So all that the law prophesied and, and spoke of and, and, and requires, all of it finds its telos, its conclusion, its finality, its perfection um, in Christ. Okay? So that's not to say that Christ obliterates the law and just completely dispenses with it outright. Right? Um, you know, the law is, and, and, and you know, there's a debate here in, within Lutheranism about classical categories of, of God himself, right? So the law is, um, classically, Lutherans have held this, our Orthodox fathers have held this. It wasn't until the later years in, uh, in like, for example, late 20th century Lutheranism that we've departed from this. Um, and maybe, maybe 19th century, like late 19th century as well. But this idea that um, the law is not not eternal. The law is, um, the, way, the way that they would describe it is the law is anything that accuses you in the scriptures. So, for example, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they hear the rustling of the leaves after they had sinned, which was God walking in the, in the, in the cool of the day. They would, see, they would say that the rust, even the rustling of the leaves was the law because it accused them. They, they recognized their sin. They heard God coming and you know, the rustling, the rustling of the leaves pr- uh, pricked their conscience, right? But it's, it's absurd. The, the, the law of God is an, a reflection of the character of God, okay? And in that sense, uh, for that reason, it is eternal. It's his moral will for the lives of all human beings, okay? And so um, it's very important how we articulate what the law is, what the gospel is, because uh, otherwise it, convert, it can subvert our Christian faith, you see. Well, it's, it's, it's obviously going to be hard to, to work all this out. I mean, human language is a limited tool. We're limited creatures. We can't understand everything. But, um, and I certainly don't want to say there's a, contra- there's a contradiction in God. But there is something that needs to be reconciled, yeah. right? I mean, there's something that has to be done, and only God could do it, mm-hmm. right? That's, I think, you know, classic orthodox christianity that god had to become man and he had to become man not because of some creature was too powerful for him Mm -hmm. well yeah i mean um you know human nature had had fallen human beings had turned away from god and so god has consigned all human beings to disobedience that he might have mercy on all and in assuming our human flesh he has united us once again uh to himself in christ so without Christ, there is no possibility of us being in union with God and have, actually having a, um, you know, receiving God's blessings and gifts and, and own life, right, being partakers of the divine nature. There's no way that that could happen apart from Christ. Uh, yes, Wes. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. 
I, of course, I, I agree with what you're saying, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, mm-hmm. our righteousness. But I wanted to say, um, our, God's thoughts are greater than our thoughts. Mm-hmm. And to put it in crass terms, it just popped in my head. He can walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay. Um, the, with the cosmic accident, what do these people do with the Old Testament prophecies? And then I think, okay, if, it's, if they insist on saying it's an accident, then it's a planned accident, and there's a collision, and we get to collect the insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate your take on it. I just reject the analogy altogether. Yeah, it's not an accident. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't think that they really have much place. I mean, they, they could probably talk a decent amount about the prophecies and whatnot. But, you know, when you come across statements like this, that, uh, you know, that the death of the Son of God was meaningless, that he was just taking this, this arbitrary blow that the law was, came to, to give us, and, uh, you know, it, it's just... It's just contrary to the true Christian faith is what it is. So, and I just want to nail this down because I asked this question of a pastor, a Lutheran pastor that I trust. I said, do you mean to say that communion is a physical taking of Christ's body? And he didn't answer me. A physical taking. I mean, we do yeah, receive. It is a physical body of Christ. I mean, by a supernatural uh, yes. miracle, we do partake of Christ's true body and blood. Yes, absolutely, okay. for the forgiveness okay. of our sins. Thank yes. you. Mm-hmm. Did you have something? Um? Sorry, I was just struggling with the language of uh, God having to like reconcile himself to himself. Right? So in yeah. 2 Corinthians 5, God's in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Right? right. So we're the ones who need reconciliation. God is good. He made us in his good image. That image, like you said, has been corrupted by sin. Christ is the image of God. Christ comes in salvation is not only forgiving us of our sin, but it's also restoring in us that right image so that he will put his spirit in us. And by sanctification, we're no longer corrupted. So salvation involves more than forgiveness of sin. It's also restoring the image of Christ in us. Um, And I think that's, that's the reconciliation. Um, God's, God's law, like you said, is part of his good nature. Um, and that good nature he made us in the image of, and he, he's restoring it to us in Christ. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, sorry if that wasn't clear enough. Yeah, there is, no, there is nothing within God himself that needs to be reconciled. Absolutely not. Because um, that would imply that there is some sort of change that would happen within the deity. And um, that would also imply, therefore, imperfection within the deity. And so as soon as you start going down that road, well, that, you know, that can lead you into some really dangerous waters. Um, the, the Lord our God has been and will always be perfect within himself. And uh, it's important that we recognize that. But thank you for your comment, yes. Um, it looks like we're, we're out of time here. Um, so thank you for all your comments and, and reflections on all of this. I probably provoked more controversy than I, than I should have, but... Uh, it was, it's good to, to, to work through all of this and to recognize the dangers and, and false teachings that are uh, that you can sometimes stumble into without really recognizing what you're looking at. So, in any case, the Lord be with you. Oh, so